0: the benefits of being Cloud Jesus, man.
1: Brought to you by iLand, this is the Cloud Bytes podcast, where we've brought together a panel of opinionated cloud customers, providers, and analysts to discuss topics related to how clouds are built, marketed, and consumed. Everyone has different needs in the cloud, so we'll debate the topics at hand, and at the very least, agree to disagree. Our goal is to provide good sound bites about how to manage your bites in the cloud. And sometimes the best conclusion may simply be that the cloud bites. This episode is all about what customers are or should be looking for when it comes to support from their cloud providers. My name is Brian Knutson. I'm a cloud technologist at Island, and will be acting as our moderator for today's discussion. This episode's panel includes an amazing group of technologists who have supported their own infrastructures in the past. Let's start by having each of our panelists quickly introduce themselves with their current role and a soundbite of their initial thoughts about what is important about the support of customers in the cloud.
2: Hi, I'm Jim Millard. I'm a senior solution engineer with VMware. And my idea of support in the cloud is that there's not just one kind. There's several kinds. One of them is classic break-fix. Another one is how to use our stuff correctly, i.e. optimization. And then a third kind, which is getting stuff done doing day zero through day two and even year two operations.
3: I'm Lauren Malhoy, I work at Juniper, um, I'm in marketing, but I still find myself having opinions about things. So I guess my little sound bite for CloudBytes is that I have low expectations for support in the public cloud anyway. Obviously there are uh, different things that we can talk about when we bring in other vendors and support there, but uh, I'll give you that. My name's Lauren and I have low expectations.
0: Howdy, y'all. I'm Joe Hughes, uh, Solutions Architect at Veeam Software. Similar to Laura, and I have low expectations when it comes to support in the cloud, other than cloud providers helping you to spend more money in the cloud. Really, it just comes down to what is your expectation? You know, Do you want to be Wild West, and do you want to just run anything and everything to consume services, or are you looking for hand-holding? And there are levels of support for both of those, but you've got to set your own expectations.
1: Excellent. Thank you all for joining me. So customers have spent years investigating technologies for their own on-premises data centers and this investigation often has included how the product would be supported by the vendor. But as more and more cloud technologies are introduced into an infrastructure, the way support works often will change. How much of the stack is supported directly by the provider and how much they'll provide for components where responsibility is shared can vary widely from provider to provider. Companies like AWS and Azure are successful with minimal support provided. Joe, when are customers looking for robust support versus approaching their providers as black boxes that will give them very little assistance?
0: I think a lot of that comes down to what it is they're actually trying to run in the cloud. You know, if it's customers that environments are primarily still consuming COTS, commercial off the shelf software. And they're not running many SaaS services, then they're expecting to be putting full VMs out in the cloud as if they were running in their on-prem data centers. So they're going to expect much more support from that cloud provider for their workloads. Whereas other companies that are possibly doing their own software development uh, that are at least just much more into the cloud native and DevOps mindsets that are iterating on their environments much more often, are going to be consuming more of the cloud-native services. So really, all they're going to be looking for is just enablement for leveraging that cloud platform, not really for as much support with what they have
2: running in the cloud. So I'll jump in. I agree and I disagree, Joe. I think the first place that people expect support is where the documentation has to meet what the actual consumption experience looks like. And if they're getting that, then they expect lower levels of support. If it doesn't work the way it's supposed to, whether it's, again, documentation doesn't match or it's true break-fix, it doesn't matter what level of consumption they're at, they're going to want a high level of support. The more a company spends with their cloud provider, the more support they're going to expect, particularly in break-fix scenarios. If everything works exactly as designed, and if they themselves are smart about building their products against multiple availability zones so that even if there are the inevitable hiccups that their stuff doesn't break they're going to rely less on the cloud provider support i also like the way that you put for enablement because as we talk about a stack you know the early days of cloud it was you had compute network and storage just like you were reproducing from on premises And there wasn't a whole lot of need for enablement. You kind of knew how to turn it on because there was only one thing to turn on. Now, if you look at the plethora of offerings inside of any of the one public clouds, it's crazy. And just figuring out what a given named product actually does in the first place, that's where that how to get our stuff used correctly comes to play. So it's both ways. You can expect a lot out of your cloud provider, you can expect very little, depending on how reliable and how complicated their offerings are.
3: Do you guys think we should expect
2: more from cloud providers? And let's be
3: really clear, right? We're all talking about public cloud providers when we're talking about the support offer, correct?
2: Well, why
1: don't you explicitly define what you mean by public cloud providers? Because I think that's a definition that we may not always necessarily agree on.
3: Yeah, I mean, great point. Like, I'm talking about, you know... VMware, or Juniper, or Cisco, and the cloud support provided with integration to AWS, Azure, you know Google, whatever. We're talking about AWS, Azure, whatever. What are you guys kind of thinking about?
0: So my thoughts are primarily the big three public clouds when it comes to AWS, Azure, and GCP. When I'm talking about customers that kind of have a low expectation of support other than just enablement of the platform, because that provider is really there to just provide the infrastructure, And to Jim's point, as long as things work properly, there shouldn't be a whole lot of support that's necessarily required beyond that. Whereas I would say, yeah, if you're running in a hosted cloud or if you're running at least more of a hybrid cloud offering where you have additional products that are layered in or integrations across multiple public clouds, or if it's hybrid, also back to your on-prem data center and additional product offerings mixed in with all of those environments... Then, yes, there I would say there's much more of a level of support that's required and expected because somebody's kind of being the interim for all that.
3: Sure. And that support might actually be the reason that you actually use a vendor like that to go into public cloud, you know, public cloud itself with no other integrations just to get that support. I mean, it's almost like a Red
2: Hat model, but more expensive. (laughs) So maybe that's part of it is when we think of the big three, we're thinking about minimal levels of support, race to the bottom. From a cost per feature functionality capability and the idea that we're building applications, we're storing our data in such a way that it's portable and we can vote with our wallets. If they don't come through when things go sideways, I think that's still a little bit optimistic. And I believe that unless you're still dabbling and not really getting more than your toes wet, the voting with your wallet is more challenging that once you have major inroads into a given platform, it's kind of hard to pick up and leave. As much as people like VMware would like to say we're building against hybrid cloud and we support any cloud, if you are truly embedded in a given native product, changing your workloads over to a different cloud provider's native product, whether it's GCP to Azure or Azure to AWS or any of the other directions, there's still a lot of friction, I guess I would say. And so it may be more effective to pick the one that has the best support based on your own criteria and kind of live with the warts rather than to retool to be able to use a different provider. Now, that's part and parcel of what VMware is trying to do in creating a consistent platform that can be consumed across all of them. But if you're going to argue that it has to be native and not the VMware solution, then you really are kind of putting all your chips in the center of the poker table. Right.
0: Some of it comes down to, you know, are there specific features that you absolutely require for your environment or you have opted that those features are beneficial enough to your organization that you would accept lock into a cloud environment? Or would you just have layers of obfuscation that are in there that require that you do additional management so that the back end of what cloud you're leveraging with your tooling can be different?
1: Yeah, and if you're driven to a specific cloud due to certain requirements or certain needs, I mean, obviously, you're going to have to deal with whatever support they have and may require a company to make adjustments. So there may become tension between different requirements to say, well, we want high levels of support, but this cloud that provides the thing that we need doesn't provide good support have you seen much of customers having to deal with that kind of tension between support needs and widget needs?
2: I know that I've run into customers that pick a specific cloud because of the widget need. And it may be it's the vanilla widget that can be found in all three of them. But there's something about the way that it integrates with either their on-premises operations or that the way it's tooled is just easier to consume Or it could be down to the dollars per consumption unit is better. But whatever that requirement is, they've selected that particular cloud provider and everything else, by preference, goes there. There really aren't many people that I run into that are running in all three clouds, public clouds, majors, as well as on-prem. They've all pretty much wanted to stick with one and live with the warts that come with the cherry on top as well. Beautiful analogy kind of a mixed metaphor, but I'll live with it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I would say sometimes, you know, it's not necessarily even to the level of how easy the implementation is to use a specific widget inside of one of the clouds, especially for early adopters of cloud environments or someone who's leveraging newer features in some of the clouds. You may just consume a specific cloud environment because they're the first one to have an iteration of some feature or new functionality that you have a need for at the time. So you're just having to kind of choose to jump in to whoever's the first to have that offering. Yeah.
2: And that also would explain why you might be in more than one cloud, that you pick the one that you wanted to, like I was saying earlier, because this is what fits. And then... One of the other providers, even someone that's not one of the big three, that somebody comes up with a SaaS app that, hey, we want to consume that. So now we're in multiple locations and that could grow even further.
1: Yeah. And that's kind of the traditional best of breed. You know, we're going to buy the best thing for this one thing that we need and actually cause some support problems across there because now you're having to deal with multiple support organizations as opposed to one more well integrated stack. On this topic, I'm going to shift a little bit. As a customer picks a cloud, they get into it and maybe they didn't go into it with eyes wide open or they were kind of forced because it was that special widget that they needed. We've all heard lots of stories about, hey, I got into the cloud and it wasn't quite what I wanted. You know, that perception changes once they get there. Lauren, I'm going to throw this one at you is how common is it for customers to move away from an AWS or Azure because there's not enough support and we have another option we can go to. Or it could even go the other way where they're at a VMware based provider and they found that maybe it was a little bit higher price, maybe it was the same price, but they just don't want to have the overhead of a dedicated account manager and a support team and all that. They want better documentation. And so they're going to go to, they're going to abandon that and go over to a hyperscaler. How common is that kind of scenario?
3: Yeah, you know, the price point is more what I've heard from customers is just being shocked by the price point. And, and maybe that's quelled a little bit over the past year or two as people kind of understand it better now. I think it was Jim's point earlier. I think we have to really look at the drivers of being in the cloud in the first place, right? I mean, we've all found ourselves maintaining that are just really difficult to use. Um, but if it does the job we need it to do, or, or we're already in it, it doesn't really matter until we can find alternative. But even if we found an alternative, I mean, when we think about gravity, um, it becomes really difficult to pull yourself out. And for those who don't know what data gravity is, and I know a lot of people don't get ask that question a lot. Basically, it's like when your data lives in one place, let's say in a public cloud in a certain region, what have you, it makes sense to put your app there, then the app that uses that data, and that app touches other data, and then that data then comes to live in the cloud because it just makes sense. And then, you know, it spreads like wildfire, right? And then eventually we're all in this one public cloud. So, you know, a little tip, having a multi-vendor or multi-cloud environment you can have a good... There are other support issues that come along with that and cost issues and things like that. But being able to avoid lock-in could be pretty important. Obviously, the more I think about drivers too, You know, data privacy is, of course, a big deal. I might not even be able to have physical colos in a certain location, but I have to have my data in that location. You know, GPR, even gains from performance that I get from having my stuff in that public cloud. So it might not just be a viable option to pull your stuff out of public cloud because there wasn't enough support. Now, as far as using like a vendor-based solution, like from VMware or Cisco or Juniper, I still think that's pretty viable. Keep in mind I work for one of those vendors. So take everything I say with a grain of salt. Enterprise multi-cloud is not just about paying for a bunch of cloud resources. It's really about having like the right resources for the right workloads. Like we were talking about, if you find the right widget, if you know an, a Microsoft application works better in Azure, that makes sense, right? But all of this needs to be somewhat orchestrated, and obviously, you do get support from vendors, like we talked about, from the what do we call them? Networking, compute vendors, I guess. And with the complexities of modernized infrastructure, the more we automate and orchestrate, uh, the more reliable our services will be. So, you know, hopefully, we don't need all of that public cloud support. But yeah, I, I guess I'm just not seeing, you know, TLDR. I'm not seeing a bunch of people things out because of lack of support. I just think it's too hard once you're in. And I think people do understand that I think people expect it to not be what they expected.
2: Yeah, I think that makes sense. I would throw out that I have yet to work with a customer that wanted to pull out of either private posted cloud or the public cloud because of a support issue. It's always come down to the consumption costs, and nine times out of 10, it was a, we thought we understood the metrics, we thought we understood what we were getting into, we ran the models, we did the ROI, and we got a bill last month that completely killed it. Get us out as quickly as possible. Yes. And, and so a lot of that has nothing to do with the support from a break-fix side. And may not even be a, how do we consume this correctly? What's the enablement side of it? But it's the optimization piece. It's the, we were so used to working with what felt like unlimited resources for on-prem because we weren't considered the cost center, right? Internal IT was the cost center. And we never got backbilled because nobody could do the reporting correctly or properly do shame backs. So we just built the same stuff the same way in our public cloud. And the first couple of months seemed groovy, but then we started putting more and more into it. And suddenly, yeah, we get that bill and you get somebody out there to help you analyze it. And it turns out you've been leaving machines on that should be shut down regularly. We just didn't tool the automation to do those kind of things. And that's really back on you. And Arguably, that's a little bit of enablement for that particular cloud, but it's also bringing some of your standard operating procedures from on-prem into cloud, and you just can't do that. But is that a support problem?
0: That, some of that's just fundamentals that a lot of people really do not understand or don't think about it going in that you really don't want to just build a data center in the cloud. You know, you have to look at what it is you're actually doing and define the workloads, that data gravity, just what you believe that consumption is going to be. And a lot of folks also don't even know that they have the ability to actually look at some of those consumption metrics throughout the month instead of just setting up monthly billing reports so they could actually see things as they're being consumed live rather than just get hit with that bill at the end of the month or at the end of a quarter or something. But it is a fundamental shift because if we had on-prem data centers, we're used to As utilization goes up, we may use additional electricity, but for the most part, everything in that data center is on and running all the time. It may or may not be used below the covers of just the big iron that's in the rack. But at that point, it really makes essentially no difference to the company, and that's a huge mind shift going to public cloud.
3: I think also the data strategy I mean ingress and egress cost money and we didn't really have to deal with that. I mean obviously we paid for bandwidth and things like that but it's just different in the cloud and I don't think people necessarily plan for that. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah it literally costs you money to pull out.
2: That's the upside down scenario too. It's it costs for ingress but it costs 10x for egress. Yeah.
3: I mean, what would be helpful is consultative services to like help you figure out your strategy and your consumption strategy. But obviously, you know, the cloud providers aren't going to tell us how to spend less money with them.
1: Yeah, definitely expensive mistakes to be made. If you go into the wrong situation to be able to pull out, I think we've all heard a lot of those types of stories. But Jim, I want to kind of go back to one item you touched on and maybe dig into it a little bit more. You know, you talked about customers' as they're onboarding, getting enabled, having that experience of figuring out where all the furniture is in in the room and making sure that they can navigate and use it appropriately. From an Island perspective, we do a lot on the onboarding piece to make sure customers are comfortable with what they're getting. But in your experience working with customers, how important are those one-time onboarding migration-type services to the overall cloud experience that customers are going to have once they get there? And you know, is that one of those selection criteria that we've kind of been talking about?
2: I'd say it's two pieces. One of them is the onboarding experience itself. It needs to be smooth. It needs to show that what those initial ROIs were, meet out for the first couple of months, that you know, here was your steady state, make everybody happy. And that's a level of support. But even more critical to that, I think, is the measure twice, cut once concept, you see some of the tweets from Corey Quinn talking about Route 53 is a database, fight me. (laughs) There are so many ways, so many features out there that they were built and intended to use a certain way that somebody could be clever and use a different way. And if they figure out that there's a billing loophole that they can essentially use something for free, then they're going to do it. You know, that's the nature of automation. We can find these ways of getting around trial periods and things like that so that you can be clever with it, but you could also misarchitect something that you thought was built for that purpose. And it turns out it's one of the most expensive ways of using that product where the enablement ahead of time would have shown, well, let's use this other widget instead. And probably one of the great examples would be, are we going to build an instance or a VM? and write some code to run on it and have that VM up and available all the time. That's one way of doing it. Or are we going to build the equivalent of Lambda functions that are available all the time, but I'd never get billed unless they're actually called? So two ways to solve the same problem. You can be onboarded with great effect by whoever it is that's helping you get into whichever cloud. But because nobody looked at the architecture and the use case and what the actual requirement was that you were trying to solve against, you may still be in a bad place for working with that particular cloud.
0: Well, and one thing a lot of people miss is writing down what those requirements are or what their assumptions are going into it, and especially writing down limitations that they run into at a particular point to see if features get added later on. Are there different ways they can consume it or where their specific modes of automation or methods of consumption that they're using that were done because of a prior limitation in that environment that nobody ever goes back to address or see, you know, is there a better way for us to do it? Is there now a native service that's cheaper than the way we were doing something before to see if there's, you know, things that they can adjust along the way?
3: I think that's a great point. I mean, how many companies, you know, that really like go through that auditing process yearly or or even you know, every couple of years. I don't know, buddy. Yeah,
1: That's an interesting topic all on its own, I think. Until
3: it's time for a refresh, right? <laughs> but we don't really have refreshes in the cloud.
1: How do you force yourself to innovate when you don't have a driver like hardware?
3: Right. <laughs> <laughs> My next marketing job will be at Amazon. And it'll be, <laughs> it's time for your five-year refresh. Coming up with <laughs> telling people why they need to buy more stuff. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that was great discussion on that. I think with that, I'll probably go ahead and kind of summarize what we've talked about, because there's a lot of great points for people to kind of take home. When it comes to deciding what clouds you should go to based on support, it's really critical to think about what you're going to be running in the cloud. So the more intense workloads you're going to put in there, the higher level of support you're probably going to want to expect. You know, the VMs versus Kubernetes are two different models that may require different levels of support from a cloud provider. And of course, anytime there's a break-fix situation, you're going to want somebody there to help you fix that situation. So that's a critical thing that any cloud should be providing to you. So make sure you're going to get that and what you expect there. Documentation is critical if you are going into a cloud that is fairly self-service, that isn't going to provide a lot of support to you. So make sure that they've got good knowledge bases and information for you to go be able to handle that on your own. And generally speaking, expectations are low for hyperscalers. They swipe a credit card and figure it out on your own from there. But that's a place where you know, VMware-based clouds like Island have been innovating and, and making a lot of noise about the level of support that we provide customers. But when it comes down to it, it sounds like support's rarely a primary driver of cloud selection. Things like costs, the gravity of data, privacy, And the ability to see the resources are all even stronger drivers to consider. But it's important to think about those things ahead of time. Define what requirements are most important to you. Have a good expectation of what you need out of that cloud when you approach it. Make sure you ask about support because that's something that you want to make sure is there when you need it. And so you need to understand when you need it. But it's critical to do that measure twice, cut once type approach so that you know exactly what you're going to get there. And, you know, if you can get a guide to help you through that onboarding process to make sure you're making the right decisions because it's new to you, it's not new to the cloud provider. So if you can get help in that journey to the cloud, look for that. That could definitely be worth its weight in gold because it could potentially avoid costly mistakes. So... With that, we'll go ahead and finish off this episode of the CloudBytes podcast. Thank you to Joe, Lauren, and Jim for a great conversation. Also, thanks to Ilan for making this podcast possible. Please check out the episode notes, panelist contact information, further information on this topic, and all the other episodes at cloudbytes.cloud. You can find our episodes on your favorite podcast app. And if you found this content useful, we'd really appreciate you sharing with your friends and colleagues, rating us on those podcast platforms as well. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the CloudBytes podcast.
2: If you're dealing with a negative support experience where they keep pointing at you saying, no, you broke it, when you did, in fact, find a defect, it's got to be one of the most maddening scenarios that I deal with even today.